Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to the only show where now because of probably what I'm about to say, you might start doubting if this is my real voice or maybe I just trained an AI voice detector to perfectly recreate my real voice. I'll never tell and you'll never n- 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 You'll never know. <laughs> Today we are joined by Leah Badgley, author of the novel The Foreigner's Confession. Leah joins us to share her thoughts on the impact of climate change on food culture, specifically the popular South Korean dish kimchi, given the surprisingly sensitive nature of Napa cabbage. Like, Napa cabbage is is so sensitive and it can't handle the pressure that if it went on stage to tell a joke, it would be shredded. (laughs) I don't care if you didn't laugh. I don't care. I'm going to add in a laugh track and you cannot stop me. But more importantly, we discuss the importance of food culture in shaping a culture's identity and how climate change is and will continue to alter the types of food we consume on a daily basis. And in our second story, we explore the oh-so-freaking-cool world of heist and, of course, the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) And to put that into a bit more context, the impact of AI on creativity. Um, Really, at what point will AI become so indistinguishable that we won't be able to tell what is and isn't authentic? Uh, Leah and I go back and forth on the pros and cons of the recent exponential growth surrounding AI language tools such as ChatGPT and whether it's been too much too soon for humanity. You know, truly, I believe we are at this crucial point, this uh, uh, Robert Frost moment, where we get to decide whether we want a Star Trek future with boundless human potential or a Star Wars future defined by endless conflict over resources. And in a moment of serious honesty, I do believe how we talk about AI will drastically impact its future. If we see it as a tool to better human life, we end up in Star Trek, spending our years perfecting the finer things in life, you know, maybe like a ideal bottle of wine. But if we see and treat AI as a tool of destruction, we do risk ending up in Star Wars, spending our future in a constant battle of chaos among the stars. But we do have lightsabers, so (laughs) take that into consideration. Uh, We still have, um, you know, a much-needed voice to our future. But as we kind of discuss a bit in this episode, that window of opportunity is it is closing fast. So, Water Coolians, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to episode 79 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Sensitive Cabbage with author... Leah Badgley. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. I like to say that I helped, uh, I was anti to grunge. I won't say (laughs) I gave birth to grunge, but there was uh, a few of us bands we all shared. There were too few bass players to go around. So we all shared the same, I think, three bass players. But it was a fun scene. There were uh, no rules. It was um, uh, very, how to say, supportive. Um, We were all in, uh, you know, New York was where the cool 
shit was happening. We were here on the West Coast and sort of the the poor cousins, if you will. So we didn't have, you know, we could do whatever we wanted. And I think that whole West Coast thing really started in, as far as the punk scene, you know, started in Los Angeles with X and Black Flag mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Butthole Surfers and all of that. Certainly my brother was was involved in that kind of more sort of traditional punk sort of sound. I was in more what was then was more new wave. And that wasn't a bad word or term then, you know, now it's come to, you know, be like flock of seagulls or something. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, then it was like, we weren't punk, but we were now it would be called probably goth what I was doing then, but there wasn't really a term for it. Um, but I definitely listened to all the British bands, um, you know, Susie and the Banshees and the Cure and all of that. So uh, that influenced a lot of what I was doing, putting out an, an album was a hard thing to do. You know, I, I sort of, Self-published, if you will, with that. I and you had, published um, that in '85, right? Yes, it came out. I, I believe it came out in '85. But it was um, it was hard for a woman to uh, then in the industry, and I, I guess it probably still is. You know, to be producing her own work and and writing her own work, and you know, with the help of a team, obviously. But um, it, it was tough and it, and it kind of um, broke me a little bit, you know, doing it. I didn't have the stomach for it, which is a good thing because I'm a crappy singer. And um, <laughs> it's a, it was an expensive way to learn that, but I learned my lesson. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, not to, I didn't invest too much. I mean, now being able to look back at that time, do you have kind of this lasting experience that you're like, man, you know what? Yeah, I kind of look back at that in a romantic way. You know, even for myself, I worked more as a creative director here in Minnesota in the music industry. But I remember the first time I saw a concert from the side because you're usually when you're watching a concert, you're seeing it from front on. But I was able to watch it from the side, kind of the background, see all the the roadies helping out, set up the shows and kind of their whole process, which was really fascinating to me. But do you have that lasting memory that you look back on and you're like, oh, yeah, that was a good time? Oh, of course. I mean, that's that was that was my 20s. Um, It was it was fabulous at the time. It was, you know, I felt that I was, you know, standing on stage and opening veins and and unappreciated and all of the stuff that as young people, you know, we feel. When we're at the center of the universe, um, as all <laughs> young people are. Uh, before I got involved in the music, I, I lived in Missoula, Montana, and and um, opened there. You know, I was this wild, crazy, purple hair Mohawk gal, and this is in the early early eighties. And a young man learned to play bass in the back of the shop that I opened by the name of Jeff Amet, who, of course, is. Pearl Jam fame now, mm-hmm. um, awesome guy. But you know, playing uh, playing Sex Pistols stu- tunes over and over. And his first show was at a venue that that I created for this. So you know, at the time, you're you're just living it and and so living, living hard. You know, all of the '80s, all of those tropes are true. So in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, that's cool. But you know, you get to be gray haired, and it's kind of like wow, I'm really glad I survived that. <laughs> yeah, your values kind of change and what you look as, what you look back at as what was once romantic may have changed because of experience, I guess. It's like the polite way to say it. I don't, you know, I don't know, Adam, you know what? I'm the same person, yeah. you know, I, I might, I might look different, but no, those values are all still there. It's just my, my um, intention and methodology has become more, uh, 
more refined, shall we say? Ooh, I like the way I like it. You got you got away with words. You're going to be ready for the show close. <laughs> well, all right, Leah. Enough about the music. Are you ready to talk about some kimchi? First off, what are your thoughts on kimchi? I know you're you know you've been uh, involved in food throughout you know most of your life. Uh, is kimchi a big part of your cooking process at all? No, it's not. Um, my um, but I like it a lot. I like um, all kinds of pickled things. Um, kimchi is, I, I know there are many, many versions of it. Um, my, uh, palate tends more to Southeast Asian cuisine than East Asian cuisine. So that shows you how much of a foodie I am that I can differentiate <laughs> that. But, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not a huge kimchi fan. I like it. Yep. Don't get me wrong. I will eat it. I will not push it away, but it's not something I buy. You know how you buy a jar of like a special kind of miso or something and you're like, Oh, I'm going to eat this. And then you put it in your refrigerator and six months later, you know, you like, Oh, what's growing in that jar. So that's kind of my relationship with kimchi, unfortunately. I do recipe testing all the time and I'll buy something and be like, oh yeah, this is going to be an interesting dish. And then you use a little bit of it and you're like, I'm never going to use that again. And I, <laughs> I totally agree that kimchi, you know, I like the pickled onions. I like pickled cucumbers, obviously becoming pickles, yes. uh, but uh, pickled cabbage, you know, not exactly my taste, but I can respect where it comes from. But you know, they're what, like, 85 billion people who love it. So who cares if we don't? <laughs> All right. Well, this story today, our first news story is from The Guardian, South Korea, written by Justin McCurry. This is from October 21st, 2020. Crisis fermenting as cabbage shortage hits South Koreans' kimchi culture. South Koreans are facing a shortage of a beloved dietary staple after a summer of extreme weather destroyed crops of cabbage. The main ingredient of kimchi, a dish eaten by about 95% of Koreans, I thought that fact was crazy, more than once a day, and 60% of Koreans for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was being described as a full-blown crisis, fields of Napa, or Chinese cabbage, were wiped out in August and September of 2020 when the Korean peninsula was struck by extreme temperatures and above-average rainfall, sparking a sudden 60% spike in the vegetable's price. In 2020, South Korea saw the fourth-highest rainfall total in 25 years. The damage has left Korean households struggling to find affordable cabbages to turn into the spicy pickle dish, which accompanies, as mentioned recently, almost every meal in South Korea. And since the pandemic has become a popular, quote-unquote, superfood around the globe, further increasing the demand for kimchi. Kimchi is often described, for those who may not be aware of what kimchi is, it's often described as a spicier, more colorful cousin of Germany's sauerkraut. Kim Dajong, a research fellow at the Korea Rural Economic Institute, states, Cabbage is quite sensitive to climate change, and any sort of extreme weather will be detrimental to its output. While prices are starting to stabilize, uncertainties over price will continue to persist until the Kim Jang season begins in mid-November. The communal act of making kimchi, Kim Jang, was added to UNESCO's, which is the UN's Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, uh, glad they shortened that down, Intangible Cultural Heritage List in 2013. In their filing, UNESCO states of kimchi, Kimchi forms an essential part of Korean meals, transcending class and regional differences. The collective practice of Kim Jang reaffirms Korean identity and is an excellent opportunity for strengthening family cooperation. Kim Jang is also an important reminder for Koreans that human communities need to live in harmony with nature. 
The shortfall is also affecting commercial producers. The country's biggest kimchi maker, Daesang, which actually opened an LA-based U.S. kimchi factory in 2022, by the way, uh, had to suspend online sales during this period. Fun fact, Daesang actually produces around 70% of Korean kimchi exports. Another producer said it looked for alternative suppliers, possibly from China, which is the world's largest cabbage exporter at 34 million tons per year to meet the increase in demands during the COVID period. Uh, just to put into perspective how big China is in the cabbage export game, India, the second highest exporter, exports about 9 million tons of cabbage per year. So listeners, you're probably wondering why the heck are we talking about a story from almost three years ago? Well, almost three years later, does the same problem still exist? Of course, the answer is yes. Come on. In 2022, South Korea was once again struck by extreme temperatures and above average rainfall. The price of Napa cabbage, which has a 10-year average of 938 won per kilo, which is about 72 cents uh, per 2.2 pounds for the American listeners, saw itself reach a high of about 1,900 won per kilo, which translates to $1.45 about per that 2.2 pound conversion in September of 2022. The cabbage shortage caused by increasing events of extreme weather continues to impact the daily lives of each of us, affecting everything from beloved traditional cuisine to commercial production and country exports. Despite efforts to find alternative supplies and stabilizing prices, the sensitivity of cabbage, cabbage is a very sensitive vegetable I found out, <laughs> to climate change continues to pose a real challenge and highlights, you don't want to, you're laughing at it, Leah, but you're going to hurt its feelings. You're going to hurt cabbage's feelings here. Continues to pose a real challenge and highlights the importance of finding sustainable solutions to the fragility of our global food systems. So, Leah, uh, as someone with years of experience in, as you mentioned, the Southeastern Asian food culture, whether it be running a restaurant in Myanmar in 1995, which I hate to bring this up, but coincidentally was the year I was born. <laughs> 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 or your time spent in Cambodia, which we will discuss later in the episode. Uh, can you speak <laughs> to the importance of traditional dishes in those regions that go beyond, and this is obviously that question I posed to you earlier, that go beyond mere sustenance and hold this you know, legit cultural significance to its people? And obviously... I do. I'm not an idiot. I do want to point out that I know that South Korean and, you know, the Southeastern uh, Asian food cultures are very different, uh, very different parts of the globe. But yeah, can you kind of talk about that experience within that food culture and the importance it had to the people of Myanmar during your time there and also Cambodia when you spent time there? Well, uh, um, sure. Uh, first, let me just say I just came back from two and a half weeks in Central Europe in, in the Balkans. And cabbage is very important there. It's not very sensitive. It's tough. It's tough <laughs> cabbage, let me tell you. Anyway, but that's the Balkans. Um, so to, <laughs> to Southeast Asia, I think food as identity to culture is uh, a hugely interesting sort of thing to think about when you're chewing on your, you know, delicate little cabbage. Um, I don't know if you and your listeners were uh, fans of Anthony Bourdain's shows, you know, No Reservations and all of that. I just, yeah. I think that he, more than anyone in, in my sort of universe, really dove deep into those sorts of issues about uh, food and culture and, and how intertwined they are. My experience in, in Southeast Asia, um, 
One, let me say that um, Burmese food and Cambodian food is super different. Uh, Burmese food is arguably more uh, traditional Burmese food. Now, Burma is a super complicated, mm. ethnically ethnically diverse country with 140 plus different ethnicities. But when I say Burma, I'm going to talk about the main sort of dominant ethnic group, Burma. And just for listeners to be aware, uh, Myanmar changed or Burma changed to Myanmar in I think '89, right, or around that time period. Yeah, you know, and and and, it, and it's a political thing as far yep. as which sort of uh, name you use. I I don't know. What should I say? Burma, Myanmar. You, you grew up there, so it's you get to choose. <laughs> you get to choose. Well, I'm old enough that I'm going to call it Burma. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Burmese cuisine is, um, traditional Burmese cuisine is really influenced by Indian food. Um, so there's lots of curries and, and rice, of course, is, is maybe the kimchi of Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. if you will, you know, the ubiquitous um, uh, accompaniment to every meal. And the food is very, very delicious and flavorful. And um, obviously my comfort food and favorite food in the world. There are uh, Burma or Myanmar does have its own sort of unique version of kimchi that it's unique, uh, a pickled thing that only they in the whole world do. And it's uh, called lapet and it's pickled tea leaves. And it is just like kimchi. It's um, put in the ground, you know, with these vegetative stuff and left to rot and then brought out and um, eaten with delight. Um, and, and I'm making it sound horrible, but really it's, um, it, it is a very unique flavor and it's eaten, um, kind of like a dessert and it's this green sort of mass, you know, if you ever have drink loose tea leaves, you know, when, uh, green tea at the end of the, uh, the pot sort of, it looks kind of like that, uh, only it's a little more mushy and then it's eaten with little crunchy condiments in it. And traditionally in Burma, Myanmar, you eat with your hands. And so you sort of scoop it up little bites of this lapet, um, with, you know, um, sesame seeds or deep fried lima beans or peanuts and, and you eat that and it's delicious and it has enough caffeine to keep you going for four weeks. Well, that's, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just, I realized I went on a tangent. Hopefully. <laughs> I love tangents. I love tangents. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I thought, you know, at the end there, you brought up something very important, um, about eating with the hands. So in American culture, I mean, we're very focused on, we need the utensils, we need the fork, we need the spoons, we need the the knives. Uh, and maybe this came over from the monarchy of England. To add more info, the first implementation of the knife, fork, and spoon was developed and first appeared together on tables during the Georgian era in Britain between the years 1714 to 1837. But then we have like salad forks and soup spoons and just crazy amount of utensils. But I know in a lot of those cultures, especially Eastern cultures, a lot of it's eating with the hands and kind of talking to Anthony Bourdain. He kind of talks about this, the the importance of eating with your hands and the connection to food. Is that something you've brought to now where you live? Are you still eating with your hands or you've gone back <laughs> to utensils? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm using a, a, a fork and a spoon. My only sort of um, concession is that when I, I use the spoon, I scrape the food onto the spoon with the fork and then eat it that way. But okay. yeah, it, uh, I, I think that there is something um, sort of visceral, um, tangible, sensual, you know, when you're touching your food and then and then your fingers touch your mouth when you put the food in. But uh, 
obviously that's it's kind of messy and and perhaps not appropriate for our western mm-hmm. sort of sensibilities yeah you know i had i had spent some time in south africa and something that's very popular in south africa is brais you know this uh, basically south african barbecue and one of the very important things about a brai is the connection around the fire and i've we've talked about you know the telling of stories around fire play, uh, around fires in a lot of previous episodes, but it's that community aspect of sharing something together through food, through, you know, very good food. If you talk to a lot of my South African friends, they're like, you need local South African wood. If you bring any charcoal in here, you got it. We got to kick you out of the country. So it has to be local <laughs> South African wood. But I have found that and maybe this is, you know, just somebody who spent most of my life as well in the food industry, that food tends to bring together people in ways that I've really never seen. Is that something you've kind of experienced as well? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Um, food is feeding people is my love language. You know, I, I, I just love to. I mean, what does a former sort of unfulfilled rock star, you know, how do they make a living is is working in restaurants, right? And, yeah. and, and so so I have long history and I'm pr- very proud to say that my semi-adult daughter is now a server in a really wonderful restaurant here in the Seattle area. And I think that that good food that uh, transcends anger, it, it transcends uh, conflict. I think that if you know um, peace talks were 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 done um, around a, a dining table versus a a conference table, I think that that might happen faster. It might be a little more uh, productive conversations. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when speaking to kimchi or speaking to just in general food that defines a country, I mean, here in the US, we have apple pie. I mean, if you think of American food, it's apple pie, hot it's dogs, hot dogs, hamburgers. It's hamburgers. Uh, there was a story about journalists asking soldiers who are going to World War II from America, what are you fighting for? And they're like, well, for my mom and apple pie. I'm like, there you go. That's how you create this cultural identity around food is by ingraining it into the culture. And obviously, a lot of that comes from the uh, availability of that. You know, I know the U.S. had a lot of apple trees when they uh, settled in the colonies. So it became this normal dish that defined now – I mean, almost 300 years later, who we are. And I think kimchi, I mean, that, what was it? I think 95% of South Koreans eat kimchi at least once a day. That's crazy. I can't, I don't think 95% of Americans are eating apple pie pie or hot dogs or hamburgers. Maybe, maybe some of them. Um, (laughs) So it's hard to kind of wrap my head around this cultural identity of kimchi in South Korea because we just don't have something as popular as that. Agreed. But, you know, the United States is is um, is this melting pot. Mm, I mean, yes, the United point. States is really unique in the world and it has all of these different cultural influences and they all brought their food. There are sort of unique silos of cultural identity, but it's there's also all of this mashing together. I mean, thinking about you know, um, food and cultural identity. I mean, when I say baguette, hello, what do you immediately comes to mind? France. Yes. France and Paris and walking down the street, you know, holding a baguette or whatever. And I think that the, and pho, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the Vietnamese noodles, I mean, you, there are certain foods that immediately you, most people, of course, not everybody, but many people will identify with and have a a reaction that has to do more than just the taste of the food. And um, I think that's really cool. And that just speaks to how 
you know, how important food is, um, but how, how um, we as human beings sort of process um, those sort of sensory experiences. Yeah. And I want to get back to kind of ask a question in relation to Anthony Bourdain. Obviously, we're both pretty big fans. He influenced a lot of my work in the culinary field. And it sounds like uh, similar to you. But what do you think made him so successful and iconic in the work he did sharing culture through food, as we've been talking about, but doing so in a way that felt very authentic and didn't feel like he was taking advantage of these cultures? That That is a topic worthy of a thesis. The <laughs> first thing that comes to mind is he started out like this New York punk rocker, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of mentality, this sort of nothing to lose, just go out and, and experience and be there. And somehow, even in the midst of all of his his fame and everything that came along with that he retained that that core you know you know as he aged as he everything changed for him he still remained that hungry skinny punk rock attitude sort of do it yourself kind of like it's it's me against the world but not in a confrontational way but in a, in an engaging way of me out in the world just me, here I am, love me or not, but I'm interested in you. And, and curiosity, you know, he, everything he did was, was imbued with curiosity. And so I just, I just um, really respected, you know, him as a human being. Yeah. He was, I mean, obviously a wonderful human being. I think from my perspective, what he did so well was show this level of respect that uh, is needed and sometimes forgotten when people travel. You know, a lot of people travel, they do it because they're on vacation or they're trying to enjoy their time. But you're also traveling to a location where this is people's homes. This is where they go to work. This is where they have, you know, heartbreak, love, all these emotions. And I think he did a really good job of showing that respect of, you know, working within these cultures to really understand the essence of what made it the country that he was visiting. Agreed. I mean, he, we know now, you know, he had this deep broken part, Mm -hmm. you know, damage that he carried with him. I mean, I personally, I have this theory that damaged people are much more interesting than, than, than not. Um, And that he, you know, carried that with him, you know, as this sort of tender place within him, within his soul that he could, you know, authentically, receive and and share and and share that. So, um, yeah, cool guy. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, we can't leave the story about talking without talking about, you know, the very real and very hot, uh, you know, temperature wise, temperature wise, Leah, come on now, (laughs) elephant in the room. Uh, But as we continue to move towards these uncertain future in regards to climate change, how do you envision, I mean, just from your own opinion, climate change impacting our food culture. Well, I've been a, an environmental activist for for um, a long time now, and it and involved in various ways, from being an elected official to a to a um, squeaky wheel, um, <laughs> you know, in government and policy making, and just out, you know, in the parks planting drought tolerant species, you know, whatever it is. But um, I I think that that um, I think we're screwed. 
I think it's too late to make a big difference and um, we're all going to die. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There it is. That's the end of the episode. (laughs) Perfect way to end it. Perfect way to end it. (laughs) Um, I I think that, um, and actually this might be an interesting transition to our next story. You know, a lot of people are putting a lot of, of hope on artificial intelligence to, to get us out of this, you know, conundrum that we're in. I, I don't know that we as human beings can actually um, do the, the hard work that exists within our existing technology to, to make a difference. Um, what, what the future looks like, if it continues on like this and this certain status, status quo, it, it's going to be really hard. And I'm so sorry for um, you. And mm-hmm. if you have kids, you know, um, we really fucked it up for you. But I, I just think that it's humans are so adaptable. Mm-hmm. But so <laughs> this is kind of a weird thing. So I'm, I'm sort of two minded of it. One, there's the, the sort of Buddhist mind frame of me that goes, well, you know what, if the human species doesn't make it, it doesn't make it. We've only been here a blip. Mother Earth will continue on, and I'm okay with that. And then there's the other part of me that goes, "Wait a minute, no, we got to do it. We got to fight. We got to strive. We have to. We have to. We have to adapt." And um, so I'm in the middle with all of that. It's just so I, I, I very much appreciate the realness and the honesty. You often don't find that, and you know these spaces, and that's why I like the show because it's you know these digestible conversations. We. You know, we went from kimchi to talking about that, which I think is important. The end of humanity. Exactly. <laughs> kimchi to the end of humanity, the perfect segue. <laughs> um, but it is so hard because it's not just one country changes their practices and the world is saved, right? We need every 8 billion people on the earth to be in cohesion and say something needs to change. And, you know, I just was reading stories about what's happening in the Ukraine with some of the Russian mercenaries. And I was like, man, this is just some fucked up shit. And then, you know, I was going to watch the killing fields last night to kind of get a better perception of your time in Cambodia. And I was like, it's just too heavy for me right now, you know, that maybe down the road. But yeah, you have to get everyone working together towards this idea of changing to be better, but we still have people that are like, climate change isn't real. I mean, yes, the earth does warm and cool. I mean, the earth is going to be fine. Like we said, you know, once humans are gone, the earth is going to be fine. You know, we're just this plague to the earth. So it's warming up to kill us off. That's what's happening. So people, a lot of people say, well, that's not caused by us. That's just a, a natural occurrence that the earth goes through. Well, we now look at cabbage, uh, Napa cabbage, I'll say, which is sensitive as hell, apparently. You can't say anything <laughs> bad about it or it'll wilt away. But here is a legitimate, credible example of climate change. Canary in the, in the coal mine, right? Ex- exactly. This is a credible example that climate change is real. It's being caused by us, by these extreme weather conditions, by what we're doing. And if people are not seeing this and being like, we need to change, like you were saying, I mean, it's not going to change. And it's just going to be this hard road for the generations of myself and my kids and their kids. And and so it's tough. I, you, you want to be positive, but you also want to be real and be like, yeah, no, shit's fucked. And if we don't do some drastic changes, it's not going to get any better. Agreed. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do have a good episode. I do have a good previous episode that talks kind of about what's going on with extreme weather with Zhubin Zhang. I can't remember exactly what uh, episode number it is, but it, that is episode 72 
Ocean Deserts with Zubin Zhang. It does talk about those things. So listeners, if you kind of want a uh, uh, upkeep on what the heck's going on with this extreme weather and why it's being caused by humans. That episode with Zubin Zhang is a great example. You know, and just to and just to clarify my position here, I'm sounding very flippant, and um, that's not my truth. My my truth is that I'm dedicated to um, doing the you know composting uh, to recycling to driving a hybrid car to um, walking li- purposely living in a walkable community you know i i am doing what i can do and i think that <clears throat> that's where people get overwhelmed is 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 it's so big the topic is so big and so i actually <laughs> It's interesting we're having this conversation. I'm responding the way that I am because I, I spend a lot of my my time educating people. What can you do in your personal life to make a difference? That that phrase has just become such a cliche. But if you can, you know, know that yes, I if I do this, it will save you know how many tons out of the landfill, which will do this, which will do that. You know, all of those things. So please know that. I'm deeply committed to that and to helping to, you know, lift up people who, who are, who are also doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we all like should throw up our hands and run <laughs> and out in the street. Whatever. And go, ah, the yeah. sky's falling because we're here for a few more generations, at least mm-hmm. unless AI takes over, which I hope we'll talk about in our next thing. Um, <laughs> we will talk about it a little bit. I think that's going to be a bigger Thing than climate change, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, a lot of podcasts will talk about this thing and be like, well, what, what should we do? And I know we talked about this in our last episode with Frank when it came to deaf salmon. But I mean, I'm in, I'm in the, the category of we need to do a better job at anti-consumption. We need to really cut down on how much we consume. I think there's that stat of like, a hundred companies are responsible for like 70% of the pollution. Well, yes, you know, they have a responsibility, but they're also making these products that we're buying. So we have a responsibility to consume less. So as far as a solution, this is the solution from myself, Adam, the host of Water Cooler Talk podcast. Just consume less shit. You don't need all that shit. That's my solution. Well done. Well said. <laughs> I would like to welcome to the show Leah Badgley with a life full of adventure. Leah has built herself as the author of the gripping historical fiction novel, The Foreigner's Confession. The story follows the journey of Emily McLean, a recent amputee who moves to Cambodia and uncovers a shocking discovery. She bears an eerie resemblance to a portrait of a former prison inmate who became tragically entangled with the brutal... Khmer Rouge regime during Cambodia's devastating civil war in the 1970s. Leah, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you, Adam. Happy to be here. So now having this background on your life in preparation for our conversation, I know everything about you. No secrets here. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Given your uh, uh, previous um, experience working to preserve the history of the Cambodian genocide at the Tuol Slang uh, Genocide Museum. You know, I can see the parallels. As I said, I haven't read the book yet, but I got it. I can see the parallels between your own life experience and Emily's journey of discovery. Was it your intention from the beginning to write a fictionalized account of your experiences? Or did those similarities kind of pop up uh, between your past and Emily's story naturally during the writing process? Well, as writers, we uh, our stories are more authentic if we write what we know. And obviously, we invent a lot of stuff. 
you have to have a starting place for, for that invention. Um, I had the opportunity to move to Cambodia in 1992 with my then boyfriend. And whilst I was there, I was offered the position to take over as director of Cornell University's archival project at Tuolslang Museum of Genocide, which was microfilming all of the documents that were still left there. The Khmer Rouge were not unlike Nazis in that they kept um, grisly uh, document, you know, uh, confessions and manuals and propaganda and all of that. And there was a fair amount of that still there, even after the uh, Vietnamese had invaded. And and so Cornell University was go had gone in after the Civil War had ended and was trying to find all the books that they could because the Khmer Rouge didn't like books. They didn't like reading. They didn't like education. They didn't like intellectuals because all of those things detracted from the purity of their mission. So um, there were few books left and um, Cornell was trying to preserve what was left and restart a national library. And while they did that, they discovered this archive at, at this former prison site. And so my job every day for um, over a year was to go to that site and oversee a local staff of about 10 people who were actually microfilming these horrific documents on site at the place where the interrogations happened, where the jail was, and then put uh, create boxes that would survive the climate for posterity. Subsequently, that those documents were used in the Crimes Against Humanity trials for some of the um, still alive Khmer Rouge leaders. I didn't answer your question. I went off on a kind of a weird tangent there. It's but. fine. It sounded good. That's all that matters, really. <laughs> uh, but I do want to ask, when writing you know, The Foreigner's Confession, did you find it therapeutic to be able to write this story, to write Emily's story, to write, I apologize, I forgot the woman she's compared to from the Yugoslavia. Yeah, Miliana. Yeah. yeah so, so yeah, good. Yes. So, um, yes, my, my, um, when writing that story, obviously I, I pulled a lot from my experience working at the museum or at the, former, you know, prison And you worked site. at this prison S21, I believe. S21. Yep. Uh, well, I didn't work at the prison. My husband sometimes says that to people and he goes, oh, was she an interrogator? <laughs> and I said, no, I was just a curator. <laughs> yes, because it became but, um, a museum after uh, yeah, Vietnam later, made yeah. it a museum. When it wasn't a prison anymore. Yes. Um, it was a pretty hairy, terrible place. Anyway, so um, I drew from that personal experience in my book, actually, I write myself in as a minor character, <laughs> um, but Emily's story and Miliana's story are not me, mm -hmm. but my personal in, um, experience influences their story. The Foreigner's Confession is a dual timeline, historical fiction novel set in Cambodia, obviously. A lot of people are not aware of or remember you know, the Khmer Rouge, and not everybody has watched that movie, The Killing Fields. I think most people would be aware of who Pol Pot is, who was, do you think, or you no? Know, I think, only, you know, no, I don't. Um, unfortunately, your generation, not so much, but um, which is, you know, we're destined to repeat, right? Mm -hmm. So my uh, beginning, the, the writing of the book, I actually had finished a different book, 
And it was the pandemic. And I was like, what am I going to do while I'm querying that first book? I'm going to start another story and see what happens. And, and my husband, is, who is Serbian from former Yugoslavia, he, I, had t- I took him on a visit to Cambodia many years ago and said, oh, honey, see, here's where I used to work. <laughs> um, and he's like, what the fuck is this place? And I was like, yeah. Um, and uh, so he subsequently remembered a story about a Yugoslavian woman in the 50s and 60s who was this sort of socialite, a real life woman who married a Cambodian man and subsequently was she and her husband, her Cambodian husband and two children disappeared during the 70s, during the Cambodian Civil War. You know, everyone knows about the Vietnam War that was happening in the 70s. Well, Cambodia is right next door to Vietnam. And so it was all happening there, too. So that story, uh, my husband's research, we learned more about this real woman, uh, the real Yugoslav woman. And subsequently, I got photographs of her and her two children and that seed combined with the seed of my experience sort of cross-pollinated and the foreigner's confession was born or sprouted out of that. That's really interesting because, I mean, obviously, I think everyone wants to write a book. You know, I think everyone really wants to write a book, but it is a process really? to – I think everyone truly, if they really sat down, they would have a story to tell. And oh, that's, sure. you know, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast because I love hearing people's stories. Uh, but it, it's hard work. It's hard work. But I, I kind of want to know the background. What brought you into the world of creating, you know, fiction? I like to call them alternative realities. You know, I know you have previously mentioned books like From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler as playing a significant role. But what motivated you? Yeah, you were on a podcast talking about your favorite book. Oh. And you mentioned that book. You mentioned, you know, libraries were the safe space. You mentioned one of this. This was one of your. When I was like in fourth grade. Yeah. Uh, But what what motivated you into this particular industry? And has that book helped shape your writing in any way? Oh, what great questions! Thank you. So, as you know, I was involved in the music world Mm -hmm. in the eighties and early nineties, and. Uh, wrote song lyrics. Those song lyrics were, for me, um, an important part, maybe more important than the melodies. And and, uh, as time passed and and that industry turned out to not be for me, because as we all know, I was a terrible singer. Um, so <laughs> I've seen the music video for tonight. It wasn't, it wasn't oh, horrible. You did? Oh uh-huh. my God. You I've seen it. So I've seen oh, it. <laughs> well, that was, you know, remember it was, it was, I got, a little, I got a little surprise coming up for you later. Oh, no. just to say, just Shoot. to say, Oh my God. All right. Anyway. Okay. So started there. Then I had this really horrible health thing happen and I um, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and that, Uh, I went blind for a while. And that's kind of a big, tough, hairy thing to handle. And so I couldn't tour and couldn't play, you know, for a while. And, and uh, so I, uh, that I had to pivot and I started doing poetry, uh, writing, you know, sort of prose poems. And at the time in Seattle, you know, we talked earlier about what a cool scene it was sort of pre-grunge. The idea of poetry slams um, started and it really appealed to my punk rock sensibility. And so I would sort of hobble down to the local, you know, cool, you know, venue and, and do that. 
And then that sort of morphed more into, into prose. And so I, I think writing has always been an outlet for me, I guess is what, is what I'm saying. Then I, you know, moved to Asia and, uh, or moved back to Asia and for the next 20 or some years and, and was doing all the stuff that I did there. And I, you know, got married and had a child and, you know, my daughter is arguably the best, you know, sort of thing I, I did and project that I did. Um, and, but now that I'm older and less sort of mobile, shall we say, writing is a perfect opportunity for me to sit at my computer and, you know, I still have that fire in my belly. I still have all of that prickly, sharp intention that made me the punk rocker that I was. And that definitely fuels the stories that I write because they are very dark and they are a little scary. And I, I use conflict zones as sort of a backdrop for my stories. And they, you know, my protagonists are usually fucked up women trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that's, that's my stories. I do think there is such a vital importance for an individual to find a a creative outlet. And I mean creative outlet. I don't mean, you know, I know some people aren't always creative, but I think you need to find a creative outlet to get out those feelings. Because I do believe even though language has improved and how we talk about mental health and how we talk about our feelings, there is something so... I don't even know the right word to say it. The language hasn't been developed yet to say it, but there is something so important about what art says and what art, and we can obviously talk a little more about art in the next story, but the importance of art in saying something that you might not have the words to say and to be able to go back and kind of your own experiences and use those to write stories or to, you know, I've spent most of my life talking to people. And so now I have this podcast because I love talking to people. I love hearing their stories. I love hearing the way they think and kind of going back to how it all started. Like what were those important pieces of art that influenced your life? I mean, I watched Goodfellas when I was a young kid and that influenced a lot of how I saw the world. It was this very dark, grimy, you know, fuck you attitude. And I was like, all right, that's the world. And that is, I mean, it's obviously a little uh, fictionalized for you know, the big screen, but that is the world. It's real. It's visceral. It's, you know, in your face. It's going to tell you to fuck off if you're in the way. Um, but also perfect dichotomy to this. One of the books I grew up with was this book called Chet Gecko by uh, Bruce Hale. He was a gecko named Chet, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> but it was like a child's book. And he was this noir detective, Chet Gecko, and he would solve cases around his school. And it led up to this big case, Maltese Falcon, which obviously Sam Spade played by the legendary Humphrey Bogart. Um, but I remember it shaped so much of what I wanted to do in the mystery of the world. I think that's what uh, it really encapsulated was this mystery of the world and wanting to explore the mystery of the world. And now I get to do that from people like yourself and hearing your stories and being like, oh, shoot, those were, you lived an awesome life. But then also being able to tell my stories and be like, I also lived an awesome life. And so I think there's so much importance in creative outlet that we've been kind of talking about here. Absolutely. You know, both you and I use language, you know, yours is spoken and, and mine is written. Um, whereas of course there's all the visual arts and the, and you know, the audio arts, you know, of music and there, there are so many different 
uh, ways to express, like like you say, and and not everyone is supposed to do that. You know, some people are are super good gardeners or super good cooks or super good somethings, and some people are are just you know people out in the world, and and so. I, I think we have to be careful not to put pressure on people that they have to produce a product of something. Well, know? I mean, I do see, I mean, I see gardening as art. I see cooking as art. I see, you know, if you're really into cars and you really like to mod your, you know, your car up, I do see that as a creative outlet. And yeah. maybe it's not in the, you know, the typical definition of what it means to be creative, but I think we kind of all ebb and flow to that creative need of being a human. So Adam, what, what, when you say creative, so this is really interesting to me. Did, is this, is this like a, um, how, how do you define creative? I would say the, just the ability to express yourself. And so say going to somebody who mods their car, you're putting a piece of you into this car as you're modding it. If you're gardening, you're putting a piece of your, my aunt, you know, Lori, who's been on the podcast, she's a huge gardener and you can tell it's her garden because she put so much of herself into this work that it becomes a piece of her. And that's kind of how, what I mean, if that helps. So you're talking ego. So you're talking, I am this, right? And and I absolutely agree. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not, uh, I'm not um, arguing that. There's also a quality to art, and maybe this is what makes good art of transcendence, where where in the making of it, it's not the I, but it becomes something bigger. And then when people view it or listen to it, they are taken out of themselves. And and so for me as an artist in any medium, because I I also paint and, mm-hmm. and do other stuff, that to me is the 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 gauge of success of of a kind of transcendence not that oh everyone can tell oh yeah leah wrote that book or leah painted that picture because yeah because okay i get what you're saying yep it looks like her but more oh i'm i'm experiencing this so that that would be my goal as an artist yeah i get i get what you're saying like when you go to an art museum the artist may have had an intention of what that piece meant but you go in with your own experiences, your own background. And, you, and, yep. and your okay. heart opens and, and you're taken out of yourself. Yeah. So so you are removed from your ego. What you are you are you become free in a way. Okay. I like that. I like that. That's kind of deep, isn't it? Maybe too deep. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> well before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Leah, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Nature uh, Conservancy in Washington State. Could you share with us the significance of their work and, you know, why they're a good fit in the context of this conversation? Well, we, well, we were talking about climate change. So, so yeah, I mean, it's all about, um, ultimately it's about clean water and trees. So that's what Nature Conservancy does is to promote education and help our forests. And in Washington state, we have a lot, but you know what? They're, they're browning. Mm -hmm. They're um, the species that grow here have grown here for, you know, the last 10,000 years are, are failing. So, um, the, 
the redwoods are are marching north, but but to have new tree species, that's something we're talking hundreds of years. So it's it anyway. Nature Conservancy does a great job. Well, I appreciate you bringing them on the show. Well, all right, Leah, you're ready to get into our final news story. Are you a fan of heists at all? Oh my God, yes. Do you want to commit a heist after this episode? Absolutely. We got time. You've we got time. Of, you've heard of the Pink Panthers, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, so yeah, I want to be a I want to be an honorary Pink Panther. I mean, my <laughs> husband's Serbian, so come on. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we find this ne- second news story it comes from LPS Spain, written by Jordi Mombru, February twentieth, twenty fifteen. Art swindlers selling fake Goya get paid in photocopied bills. Two brothers from Garona, Spain, who planned on swindling an Arab sheik into buying a forged Goya painting, found out they were the ones who were swindled when the 1.7 million Swiss francs, which is about 1.9 million US dollars, they had received turned out to be photocopied bills. The opening chapter of a bizarre real-life cautionary tale for would-be fraudsters began when the brothers reportedly bought the Francisco de Goyo painting, a portrait of Spanish artist Antonio Mario Esquivel, in 2003 with a down payment of 20,000 euro. And the euro is pretty close to the US dollar. I think the US dollar is a little higher, uh, so I won't do the conversions for all the euros. At the time of their original purchase in 2003, the brothers believed both the painting and the authenticity certificate for the artwork to be genuine. But after experts declared it a 19th century fake, a Girona court in 2006 said the pair could keep the painting for the deposit they had already paid rather than the 270,000 euro full price they had originally agreed upon with the seller. So now we make our way to December of 2014. The brothers, knowing this Goya painting is fake, arranged to sell the fake Goya through a mysterious Italian middleman who charged the brothers a commission of 300,000 euro for brokering the deal with the sheik for the agreed upon amount of 4 million euros. So 4 million euros was the total price that the sheik, the quote unquote sheik was buying this painting for. And then the 1.7 million francs was a down payment towards that total agreed upon price. Spain's national police found out about the transaction when custom authorities in Avion, France, had detained the brothers after discovering the fake bills in their suitcase. Prior to their detainment and eventual arrest for attempted fraud, the brothers had just made the discovery themselves after attempting to deposit the money in a Swiss bank. While the alleged quote-unquote chic... And the mysterious quote unquote middleman have both since disappeared along with the 300,000 euro. The fake Goya painting has been confiscated, although the real artist himself, Francisco de Goya, known for his dark sense of humor as well as being a, a father of modern day surrealism, might well have seen the grimly funny side of the brother's singular failure to make a fortune from his name. Uh, so Pink Panther, would you say that is one of your favorite heist movies of all time? Oh, uh, so I was talking about the Pink Panthers who are a, a group who actually do heists now. Oh, do we, we of, had totally, I was thinking of the comedy movie, the Pink no, Panther. definitely the movie. Yeah, 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 definitely. But no, there is this group that do jewel heists now in oh, Europe. Oh, really? Yeah. And and they call themselves the Pink Panthers, probably from that movie, the original from the movie. movie. So here's the really cool thing about all of this, Adam, is my next book that's coming out tentatively titled uh, Ruby Kitchen is a jewel heist 
with food. So we previously we were talking about food yep. and now we're talking about jewel heist. So I just It's like I'm good at my job. It's like I'm good at my job. It's like you're really good. It's like you're psychic. I don't know. <laughs> but do you have a but favorite yeah, it, heist movie? I mean, movie? jewel heist is so cool. Um heist movies, um I like them all. I mean, especially if if, you know, jewels are involved because I'm crazy for for gems. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always like thrillers. They're always I, I mean, except for of course the the Pink Panther, you know, franchise which is just so wonderfully funny. <laughs> um Peter Sellers, oh my god, mm-hmm. what what a talent. But even so, it was still ha- had a little edge to it, you know, that otherwise it wouldn't have been as as good as it was. How about you? Yeah, I kind of seen like I mean, one of my favorite heist movies of all time, obviously, is Ocean's Eleven with oh, the so yeah, sexy yeah. George yes. Clooney and Brad Pitt. I mean, you can't go wrong there. Yeah. Um, but I, I can see kind of where they got some of that inspiration from, uh, you know, from the Pink Panther. It's like it's the serious movie, but also there's this edge of comedy. You know, Matt Damon has this fake, stupid, weirdly big nose, and of course, Matt Damon wears the ridiculous fake nose in Ocean's Thirteen. Um, you know. Also, you can't go wrong with Heat, with De Niro and Pacino starring face-to-face, that diner scene. I mean, whew. Uh, Inside Man, I think with Denzel Washington. I'm a big heist guy. I'm a big heist guy. I've always said, I've always said, if life goes wrong, I'm going to try to rob a bank and just go from there. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I think it's very interesting. You know, I, I grew up talking back to about, you know, kind of media that influenced us. I grew up reading a lot about all of these, you know, bank robbers and, uh, obviously, now as I've matured, I've realized, oh, maybe these weren't the best people in the world. <laughs> um, well, you started but I with do good think, fellas. So right? Hey. Exactly. Uh, I blame my parents for that one. Um, <laughs> but I do think there is a romantic idea of heist, this planning and this execution and doing it for a reason that's personal to yourself. So I do think heist movies are some of the best movies. You know, I'm a huge Guy Ritchie fan. I just think it's an interesting genre. Agreed. Yeah. There, I mean, there's, um, they're always sort of, well, they should be. I, I think good, good heist movies are crisp and uh, well-paced and uh, smart. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to watch for, because you know, there's going to be the gotchas, or at least me, I'm always, as a writer, I'm always watching like, okay, where is it? Um, so I, I always enjoy those movies for sure. Well, all right, well, let's get to the second elephant in the room. Um, but let's talk about AI a bit. So given the cautionary tale of the brothers who attempted, uh, the swindle using a forged painting, it's clear their greed and deceit led to these disastrous consequences. This story also brings up the larger conversation of the importance of honesty and integrity. As someone who has been in the creative industry for most of your life, I'm curious to know your thoughts on the role of AI in art uh, specifically, and how do you think it will challenge our perception of what is genuine and authentic? I don't know. Once again, we're fucked. Oh, um, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) I feel set up for to to reply in that way. Um, art is theft. Okay. I, I absolutely, um, believe that, that we, our one's art is built on the foundation of other artists work. That's just, that's just a fact that how, that's how it works, but that's human to human. When, when you involve the algorithm, uh, then it's a whole different kind of ball game. And so we're, we're right now we're talking just in the realm of creative pursuits, but there's a whole lot of bigger stuff out there. I, I just think that AI is the sort of 
genie in the in the bottle and and we've unstoppered it and and it's too late to to pull it back now that what is it chat gpt gpt is is out um i think we don't know we don't know what we've done i don't know i'm i'm reading the the dark places you know where where they talk <laughs> about what's going to happen and i'm remember remembering all the terminator movies you know With and, skynet and, uh, yep <laughs> Um, which, which, uh, but maybe uh, I hope to be wrong, you know, well, here, well, here, maybe this will help you. So somebody using chat GPT, uh, the four just came out, uh, and they programmed it. It's now called, or what their program they made is called chaos GPT. And it asked it to destroy the world. And so the first thing it did was research the most destructive weapons in the world. The second thing was it wrote a report about why they're the most destructive. And then it tried to use other uh, GPTs to help it build this following on, I believe, Twitter, um, because, of course, Twitter is kind of a shithole these days. But it's so crazy that, you know, I get what you're saying, this, you know, the Skynet fear. A lot of people are afraid of, but I have, a, I have a little different take. So first off, I have some news to break to you. That question was complete AI. I, from the last 10 episodes, I put in all the questions I've asked. I said, you know, figure out my diction, figure out how I talk, figure out my vocabulary. I gave it the story read and I was like, all right, give me a question about AI. And that is the exact question or the exact question it came up with. So there you go. I don't know if that freaks out a little bit, but the interesting thing is as someone, you know, I've been working with chat GPT. I think it came out November of last year in 2022. I started working with it um, since December. So I, I look at this question and maybe it's because I know it was written by an AI bot. And I'm like, all right, there's, there's pieces here and there that I can be like, oh yeah, I know this is written by a bot. Even uh, I know a lot of like comments and a lot of papers are being written by, you know, chat GPT. And there's a certain diction that it hasn't figured out yet to sound natural. But it's been almost six months since chat GPT has gone public. And it's completely exactly it's the exponential growth of, of AI of this to learn, you know, and we don't as human beings, that's our blind spot. Mm -hmm. We don't yep. understand. We, we can't recognize what that exponential growth means because when we were humanoids on the savannah, on the savannah you know, leaving Africa, we, we didn't need to know that. So, so we have this complete blind spot mm -hmm. to understanding what, what, this, what this means and the implications of it. Yeah, and I follow this, uh, this individual who posts all these updates on what AI is now doing. And he was after three months, he was like, I just can't keep up. There's so much happening so quickly that it's just like you said, the genie's out of the bottle. But here what I here's what I will say in defense of AI. AI is just a program of humanity. So the way I, I see AI in a very positive aspect, I see it as this potential tool to help humanity live an easier life. So for example, say, Amazon warehouses, they went completely AI, complete AI machines. You would hope, you would hope that that money saved by not having to pay workers would go back into society. But we know, at least here in the US, we're very capitalistic mindset, that money's not going back into society. That money's going back into the shareholders. And so now we have people that are losing their jobs and they're not getting that money back. There's no you know, universal basic income. So I think it's 
it's the leaders in these fields and the the leaders that are using AI for nefarious purposes that are creating this negative reaction around AI. Because I know they uh, recently talked a lot of like big tech heads have been like, we need like a six month pause on chat GPT. When you really look into why they're saying that is because well, they're all developing their own similar AI type language model, and they want to catch up. All right, we put a six month pause on chat GPT. That doesn't mean other countries that have nefarious reasons for wanting AI are going to stop. You know, not everyone's going to stop just because the US says, hey, let's let's chill a little bit. You know, like you said, the genie's already out of the bottle. So I believe AI is a good tool used by powerful bad people and that's how you create something like Skynet is because the wrong people are in charge of the button that says, let's destroy the world. And so that's that's my defense of AI. I think it's I think it's a wonderful a tool. I do. I think it's a wonderful <laughs> tool, but I think the wrong people are in charge of using it and implementing it into society. <laughs> it's, I get it. I get it. It's hard to defend because of the fear, but... I do think there are so many positives to it. I mean, I use ChatGPT as an editor. I'll write something. I'll have ChatGPT. You have to, I mean, I trick it into believing it's this editor and I'll have it edit my work because as you know, in the self-published field, it's hard to get reliable editors that really do a good job. Uh, and so be able to use this tool to save time, to save money is, I believe, beneficial. Um I hope so. <laughs> I, <laughs> and and maybe it's just my, you know, um, gray hairs are showing here, but I, uh, I hope the, you know, the best for, for humanity. This, this is, um, I think we just got too smart for our britches as my grandma mm. might say. Well, and that's, that's the, that's a concerning thing. I will agree with you on is you know, AI is is doing a pretty damn good job. I know there's like legitimate AI programs that recreate voices. And so when we get into deep fakes, we get into, you know, really understanding if something's real, if something's fake, that becomes a major concern, especially in like the political realm, especially in, all right, now your favorite celebrity just said the worst possible phrase ever. But did they actually say that? Or was it, you know, some nefarious person trying to tear down this person? So Adam, so my ne my third book that I'm working on actually has an AI um, component to it. So that's why I'm a little bit more sort of starting to look not as deep as you, as you have, but, but starting to, to sort of put it on my radar. And I watched a, a video that, that likened AI to um, alien contact mm. um, as an alien because it's non-human intelligence, right? The video mentioned by Leah here is titled The AI Dilemma by the Center for Humane Technology. So it said that this video that I saw, um, these two fellows posited that basically we've already had first contact with this alien and it was social media. And that social media has in the, in the, how many years, a decade or so mm -hmm. since it's been, it's been prevalent has hugely impacted us as a species, as yes. human beings globally. I agree there. Um, yes. As far as negative impacts. I mean, yes, there's positive stuff. It's more convenient, all of this. But, you know, when we look at how our kids are doing now is at, at, uh, all of that and how we can't be, you know, alive without our phones attached to us, you know, all, all of that. Um, so 
if social media was first impact or in in uh, contact, he said that this chat GPT GPT was second contact. Okay, that basically. There's no going back. Um, he said that uh, 2024 will be our last regular election, that from now on, there will be no normal kinds of elections because it will all be, you yep. know, so that's democracy, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. our democracy is at risk. So if that's not serious, what, what you know, you're talking about, you know, where we can't trust what the media is telling us. Because of these so-called deep fakes, it's like we can only trust our neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and so I'm not being very um, eloquent here, but I'm definitely concerned. Yeah, and I think that comes across. No, I do think you know there are very valid concerns when it comes to AI, but I do think it's an opportunity for humanity to come together for community. Because I mean, for example, deep fakes, whether you know if it's real or not, you have to trust what's uh, who's posting that. You know, I know NPR, there's a lot of talk with NPR leaving Twitter, but NPR is arguably, with most polls, a trusted news source. So if NPR is releasing something, I'm more likely to trust it than, say, if news extra extra.com releases it. So I think a part but for of- for how long? So, so 10 years from now, 20 years from now, NPR could have shifted and become the new Twitter. You know, I, I mean, there's there's a lot that can change, you know, that we tend to just see, you know, the next like three years ahead and not look at things from a generational perspective. Yeah. Um, so it's in, interesting days. And, and, and that's <laughs> something, you know, that people have said forever. But I think now it's interesting in a really new way because we have made alien contact. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. Um, no, I, I with- like the way you kind of described that and kind of finished my point there. I think there is now this imperative to build community, to build trust within one another face to face and, you know, within our communities where we kind of lost because of social media, because of, you know, the internet and this, you know, first contact, as you've mentioned. So it's up to us as humans to be like, we have to build this community back that we've lost through social media before it gets too late. And I think, I, th- I, I do think, I think we're on the doomsday clock. We're, you know, right there at 11. I do think it's close, but I do think, I mean, I have to, that's the thing, you know, just thinking about kind of what we've been talking about. Like I have to have hope. Otherwise, why do I care about the next 70 years? Well, yeah. And so it goes back to what we were talking about with regards to climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, hello, look how good community has done to stop climate change. Not. <laughs> so, so, um, but what we can do is these little everyday sort of mantras, if you will, or prayers, you know, when we um, compost our, our, our vegetables, our, our spoiled kimchi. Um, it is, <laughs> From the, is, the, the sensitive cabbage. Right. <laughs> so arguably, does kimchi spoil? I don't know. That's a moot point. <laughs> you know, yeah, we, we have to, you know, bring the vision into our, our lives, our families, our homes and, and our, you know, the people we care about and how can we care about them. And, and, and that perspective, that sort of more narrow perspective maybe is what we need. Maybe we've just got, we can see so far because of the, you know, Hubble telescope, you know, maybe we just need to turn that in on, on ourselves as, as humans a little bit. And I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, no, that, I mean, perfectly kind of, uh, 
summarizes kind of my thoughts there. But Leah, I want to thank you for taking the time today, uh, engaging in productive and meaningful conversation, and as well as sharing your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer. We really ebbed and flowed from kimchi to the death of the world to art heist to the death of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listeners, if you would like to support and read Leah's latest novel, The Foreigner's Confession, you can do so by heading to her website, heading to her website, www.leahbadgley.com or across social media platforms such as Instagram and Facebook at Leah Badgley Author. Once again, the website is www.leahbadgley.com or across major social media platforms at Leah Badgley Author. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So, Leah, it's, it's been said numerous times, at least five times, I think, that uh, writers tend to be a bit introverted. You know, who would have thought the people who enjoy spending hours upon hours alone with their thoughts will be drawn to a profession where you're most often spending way too much time in front of a computer, most likely at a coffee shop, maybe an airport bar, with a blank document open, trying to put thoughts to paper. But what do you think it is about the craft of storytelling that attracts introverted individuals? Or maybe is it the other way around? Hmm. Interesting question. I, I think that for me, I think introverted people perhaps tend to be more watchful and so observant, perhaps, because they are sitting in the corner <laughs> <laughs> all alone, wondering why no one will talk to them and thinking about that. So perhaps the... Um, Human connections are, in a way, something that's more examined as a concept for introverts. I 100% agree with you. I'm not going to add anything that ruins that. Uh, All right. As always, thank you to all my listeners for tuning in to another episode of Water Cooler Talk podcast. The only such podcast, uh, this is a fun fact here, on the internet, hosted by myself and guest hosted today by you, Leah, uh, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and, well, just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre real news stories. And now, Leah, we've reached my favorite part of the episode, where I also reluctantly hand off responsibilities of closing this conversation to you. And in the spirit, this is the this is the surprise. And in the spirit of your time spent writing lyrics, I wrote you a poem. Oh, awesome! <laughs> okay, I practiced it earlier, so hopefully, I can get through it. The Are you going to sing it? No, I'm not a good singer. I'm not at all. Well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here it goes. As we reach the end of this tale so sweet, reluctantly I hand the reins to thee. My hosting hat I remove with grace complete, and place it upon thy head with reverie. Weave for us a tapestry of words divine that captures every phrase and utterance true, a masterful composition that will shine and linger long after the show is through. Let thy words stand tall and resolute, unyielding to the almighty force of time, as once sang, structures of glass and stone bend and sway. Thy prose a symphony, a thing sublime. With great anticipation, we await thy verse. As we depart in a blaze of glory bright, our hearts lifted by the power of thy words, our spirits soaring with the written light. Leah, you are now the host of once was once called an OK show. The floor is yours. No pressure. Uh... <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I wrote this at like 2 a.m. last night. <laughs> so um, thank you. That's awfully sweet, Adam. I hope you send it to me and I can I will, like, yeah, of print course. it out and put it on the refrigerator. <laughs> um, well, hanging out here on the computer and chatting with you has been such a delight. And I encourage everybody, if you're into podcasts, please, please follow Water Cooler Talk podcast with Adam. It was um, irreverent. But, but at the same time, significant. And that is a very difficult balance to, to capture. So well done to you, Adam. And I had a blast. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Well, yeah. And thank you. I always like to end the show on gratitude. I think it's important. But thank you for obviously being on the show. You know, as I, we talked in the very beginning, you know, I mean, be able to spend, I mean, now 90 minutes with a complete stranger you meet on the internet just in the whim of the middle of a day on a Thursday in April means a lot to me that you're willing to do that. So obviously, you know, putting in the time to, you know, properly properly research who you are and creating a show uh, surrounded by your experiences is very important to me. So that's always my gratitude back to you coming on the show and sharing your time with me. So I just want to say, obviously... Thank you for doing that. You're most welcome. It's, yeah, it's been um, quite a pleasure and um, a little freaky how, how deep you <laughs> went in the research. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.